This is an interview with Al White in Los Angeles on Friday the 18th of May, 79. Now, I, I, I had a long chat with um, Ted Stomdahl up at um, Mojave the other day, and oh, he did. told me quite a bit about the B-1, but he was... About the B-1 or the B-70? Uh, well, the, the B-1 and the 70s, yeah. both, of course, and uh, he was um, telling me more about the lower end that he flew. He know, I think he got up to Mark 2-2 on it. Did you talk to Fitz Fulton by any chance? No, they unf I wanted to, but unfortunately he was away, so uh, yeah. he was out of out of his office. He's probably months. one of the most experienced test pilots around, in my opinion, mm. and probably one of the best. Yeah. Fantastic guy. I've got a lot of people I want to see. Uh, Bob Hoover yeah. I didn't have a chance to see. I wanted to talk to. Uh, Ed Heineman I wanted to go down and talk to, but I gather he hasn't been too well lately. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, hopefully if this gets off the ground, then I'll be back and we'll, we'll go into it in more depth. Great. But um, I think, obviously, the B-70 experiences of yours are the ones I want to hear, but I'd be very interested to hear a, a sort of summary as to how you... of your of your flying experience, really, through this, this regime. You, you were not with North America for quite some time, weren't you? Yes, I went... Uh, uh, well, just to go back a little, uh, if I... if it means anything, I flew a couple of tours in... Uh, in England during World War II and P-51s. <clears throat> and from a flying standpoint, I mean, from a from a pilot standpoint, I think combat flying is uh, some of the best flying you can do because it's sort of a no-holds-barred, uh, you know, it's a, it, there are no restrictions. You do what you have to do to get the job done. So it's it's enjoyable from a pilot side, but war is not any fun, obviously. But the flying is fun. And uh, then when I when I came home, went back to school, and then I wanted to get back into service and get into the military test flying business, which I finally did, and I got into Edwards. And I was there a couple of years, and then it was pretty obvious that I wasn't going any place in the military. So I applied for the job at North America, and that was in '54. And uh, from that time on, I just I had a great time. I mean, it was uh, it was at the very early stages of the F-100 program, uh, so I got into uh, airload surveys and structural demonstrations and a bunch of things like that that were you know that are uh, demanding and exciting and I think leave you with a sense of personal accomplishment uh, the only thing I didn't do that I never got to do in any of those programs was a spin program I always wanted to do one and we had a chance at one time to to um, well our boss agreed that we could all go out and spin one of the airplanes once or twice and then the first guy that did it and I won't mention any names spun it in so that ended that that program <laughs> Uh, Going back to your P-51 days, um, presumably you came across some um, compressibility problems in combat, you know, when you got a bit too enthusiastic in a dive and this kind of thing. Well, I, I guess I guess you could say uh, we probably did, yeah. You, you find some things like tucks and some little porpoising, but at the time you... <laughs> The time you get into those, or at the time I got into them, where, you know, you're involved in combat and you're so, I think, so... There's so much adrenaline flowing uh, that that 
even if I knew what it was at the time, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have recognized it. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't. It it wasn't the kind of flying that you're looking for new phenomenon. You're you're looking for something. You're after somebody or or somebody's after you, yeah. one or the other. What uh, type of aircraft did you tangle with, with Germans at that time? Well, uh, quite a number of uh, FW-190s and, and 109s, uh, the ME-410, 210 and 410, uh, some JU-88s, and of course the old JU-87. That was, a, of course, when you ran across a bunch of JU-87s, that was the old Stuka dive bomber, you know, fixed landing gear. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you had to be careful that one of your own guys didn't shoot you down trying to get to him first. <laughs> uh, anyway, could you um, go into a little more detail about your time on the F-100 because it was a significant aircraft and it was in that it was the first jet to go supersonic level flight, but it also had a number of vices to it that had to be sorted out. Were you involved on the? Yes, it did. It had. Um, and I, you know, I'm going back quite a ways in my memory now, but there, there, the first, I think the first big problem we had with the airplane was that uh, uh, supposedly didn't have enough vertical stabilizers, vertical tail. Uh, I don't know why this came about. Uh, I'm not that knowledgeable about aerodynamics. I understand the basic principles, maybe, but so we had a program that. Uh, uh, I think the first thing they started out to do was to improve the control system. We had a lot of complaints about the control system. I think part of that was that we really didn't have enough directional stability because we, 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 a fellow by the name of Bob Baker and I did quite a lot of flying on getting the friction out of the control system and trying to solve some of the control problems that we were having. Were they fully power controls, were they? Yes, yeah. yes, and there was, uh, you know, there was some. Uh, there were the, the airplane at times at high speed. There were places where it would seem to wallow a little bit, and uh, and it it had uh, very uh, I shouldn't say severe, but it it coupled rather easily between roll and pitch and yaw. So then they put the bigger tail on the airplane. Prior to putting the bigger tail on the airplane, I had done a. Uh, the first in-flight refueling test with the airplane with a short tail, and we had an awful time with it, particularly when they had stores on the airplane because the, it, it just wasn't it wasn't as controllable as you'd like it to be in some of those flight regimes. And they put the bigger tail on it, and I think that it improved the airplane very much. Mm. Did uh, you have any yaw damping um, equipment or anything like that? Yes, uh, we went through a big. And I don't really remember all the details, obviously, at this time, but we went through a big program to uh, to optimize the yaw damper for the airplane. And the later airplane that came out, the D model, the, this, let's see, the A model was just a, originally classed as an air superiority fighter like the F-86, say. No wing fuel, just fuselage fuel, fairly short-legged, uh, not only two pylons on it. Then they came out with a C model that had six pylons and they put wet wings on it. Extended their, increased the gross weight. And that was one of my project airplanes. And then the next model after that they came with a D model which had uh, I think um, 
the, probably the main thing the D model had was uh, flaps for the first time on the airplane because we had a lot of trouble with people landing too fast. A 45 degree swept wing and no flaps and a rather nose high attitude in on the final approach. Uh, and even though you were landing at a supposedly a minimum touchdown of 150 knots, the airplane didn't feel good on the final approach. There was some buffet involved with it and so on. And when airplanes don't feel good, pilots tend to add on a 10 or 20 knots. And we were we were finding that we were having problems with the airplanes going off the other end of the runway and, and collapsing drag chutes because the guys were just touching down too fast, burning out brakes and doing a lot of things. So we went out and did a lot of demonstrations with the airplane. But then they came with a D model and they put flaps on it and lowered the landing speed by about 15 knots. And it, it was a heavier airplane, like they all get heavier as they go on. Had an autopilot and had the auto labs capability and a bunch of those things in it. But then again, we got into a flight control problems because of all the follow-up servos in the autopilot system and had to clean it up. But I think that I thought that airplane was a fantastic airplane. I really did. I got so I just loved it. You enjoyed flying it, didn't you? Yes. And I think the reason, one of the reasons I got to love it was that when you uh, when you take an airplane out and, and do things like take it up to uh, to uh, what was it I think 700 knots or I can't remember the top speeds that we had in the thing at at, at low level which meant a dive from 50,000 feet to get it at 10,000 feet and then do a hard rudder kick and and do some of those kind of things pull maximum load factors and pull do the maximum rolling pullouts and things like that in the airplane and it stands up and performs well, I think you you gain a lot of respect for it and you get so you love it. You get so that you really believe in it, you know, you're at home in it. And I got to that point. Because it was both an air superiority fighter and a, and a tactical bomber, wasn't it? Well, it, it got to be an attack air, yeah, the mm. bomber airplane, all of the later versions of it. They came out, they took a C model and... and uh, put a 36-inch piece or a 30-inch piece in it and made a two-place airplane out of it, and that was the prototype of the F model. Uh, they called that the TF-100C, and it, and it eventually ended up being in production, the F-100F, two-place. And that was another one of my project airplanes, and that, that was a great airplane. Funny thing about that, we had, uh, at those in those days, I think 11 engineering test pilots and they were the people that did the experimental or the developmental work. And, uh, but other than maybe flying back and forth to the desert in light airplanes, we never had flown with each other in a, in a test airplane, you know. You, you might fly Chase on a film, but you'd never actually flown with him. Like I'd never flown with Hoover or Welch or Baker or any and then we got the, the two-place airplanes, and we'd go up to evaluate something. A pair of us would go up, and you'd find out all of the funny things about the other guys flying that you didn't know. Like we had a couple of young guys that couldn't, they couldn't make a 180-degree turn without pulling four Gs, you know. They just, and I was sort of one of the older guys. <laughs> and I took my, my time getting around the turns, but uh, it was really kind of amazing, the things that, you know, that you never thought of because you're always 
solely by yourself. We first did the. We first uh, went up in the two-place airplane to do some labs maneuvers one time, and I had another fellow by the name of Shepard with me who was a good friend. And uh, when you when you lit the afterburner in that airplane, it was it was like a controlled explosion, you know, and it, it jarred you like that, and you took off. Well, if you lit the afterburner yourself, you knew it was going to happen. But when you're flying along there, and all of a sudden the other guy lights the afterburner, it just <laughs> scares the living daylights out of it. So we had to get up a, a, a set of signals to warn each other when we were going to do some of these things. It's kind of a funny. Did, did any of you get to be sort of backseat drivers like you do in cars? Because often, you know, a good driver who's used to driving on his own hates being driven by anyone else. I mean, did, did either of you? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you'd cuss the other guy under your breath a lot and do mm -hmm. some funny things. I had a I had a fellow, it wasn't in an F-100, but I had a fellow just for curiosity one time in a T-33 pressed the pressed a test on the fire warning light. And I went through the procedure. I jerked the throttle off and everything else. And he says, what the hell's going on? And I said, well, the fire warning light came on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those kind of things. So I think, yeah. You live by reflexes. Yeah, also. that's right. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's a, it's amazing how much you don't know about the, the things that, you, how much you don't think about with when you're by yourself all the time. And then all of a sudden you have somebody and uh, all those simple little things uh, become kind of complicated. You mentioned earlier, earlier on you, you've done a lot of stress and loading tests and so on and found it very satisfying. Um, this is typical of the sort of problems I have in trying to communicate an expert's enthusiasm to a non-expert. I mean, have you ever, for instance, tried to describe your work to someone you know well, a good friend, a brother, a wife, in language that they can understand and convey your enthusiasm for your work? Well, I, I think I've tried to do that. I don't know how successful I've been, but I, I would. I guess what I would, the, the thing that in, that makes me enthusiastic about it is, is that. Um, I guess the primary feeling is is as I said a feeling of personal accomplishment. I mean, you have you you go and do something that that. Uh, the designers say, uh, sure, can be done, and certainly you don't just go out. I think in, in days way back, pilots probably went out and and uh, put another wire on the airplane and then took it up and, and found out whether that worked or not, whether that was strong enough or not, and if it wasn't strong enough, it broke. Uh, it's nothing like that anymore, or at least even in the days that I was, it wasn't like that. Uh, that thing had been tested in wind tunnels and in, in mock-ups and, and the calculations had been done and you were part of that if you if you if you were concerned you were part of that you got into the, the act of, uh, of uh, overseeing or at least being knowledgeable about what those people were doing so you went out there certainly with a, a feeling of uh, uh, of some satisfaction that everything had been done that could be done, and now somebody had to prove it. And and so I think that's what it was, that was the excitement in me. It was that you're doing something that isn't the commonplace thing. And I think that excites everybody, and I think when you get back, you're recognized for having done that. 
And I think that's probably what it's all about, really, or that's what a lot of the underlying thrill of it is, is, is everybody's striving for recognition. Uh, but I think personal accomplishment, that sense of feeling, gee, I did something, you know, that contributed to the development of this, particularly if you believe in the airplane, and that certainly, if I can jump ahead of the B-70, was one of the things that, that was so exciting to me. Here was something that was way beyond anything else around, and, uh, and I had a, a key role in the development of that airplane, and I just that's just the only thing that keeps you going. So uh, the kinds of things you do, at the time you might dread doing them. I know there were a lot of nights in the B-70 program, when, or early mornings, when I wanted to pull the covers back over my head and say, forget it. You know? But uh, you can't do that. Obviously, you got a commitment. And uh, I think that then after it's all over with, it was well, well worth it, and a lot more. There have, there have been some <clears> great... Problems with a big P, you know, in in, in aviation development. I, mean, I, I think the the problem of roll coupling that, that came out with the F100, and of course made itself visible in lots of other airplanes. I mean, Roly Beaumont told me about the problems they had on it with the Lightning. Yeah. And uh, the lesson is now incorporated. You know, you can see the size of the the fins on modern aircraft. Uh, another example I can think of is, is the fatigue problems that the Comet had, and how long it took them to. Yeah. Pick up all the wreckage and put it together like a jigsaw puzzle, and can see and can see the path of destruction it took. But uh, now that you started talking about the B seventy, this is something I'd, I'd really like to get some um, verbatim from, because to me, looking at it up at Dayton, it, it was a revolutionary looking airplane, an exciting looking airplane. And I know you were involved in it right from the word go, weren't you? And mock up stage and everything. Well, yeah, I went back to the, well, I think, and probably. 57 uh, some of the dates are escaping me now but it seems like it was either 55 or 57 that first proposal came out which was a I don't know if you've ever heard that story or not but it had a it was about a Mach 2.5 airplane or something like that and it had these uh, floating wing panels on it. They were floating fuel tanks, really. But they were, uh, I understand, the surface area of those wings that supported that tank were almost as big as the B-47. They had their own hydraulic system and landing gear and everything. And they hoped the total all-up weight of the thing was a million pounds. And it was... Uh, you know, you went part way in with these floating wing panels on and dropped that and then went the rest of the way. They were aerodynamic drop tanks, really, there, were they? Yes. Mm. And uh, LeMay said, that isn't, a, that isn't an airplane, that's a three-ship formation. And I thought that was a, <laughs> was a great comment. And of course, they abandoned that one, and I think it was 57 that they got in the other one. And at that time, I was assigned. So I got in at the early part of it, and I had about... Oh, 200 hours in a simulator. We had a one thing they call it. You know, you've heard it. I'm sure the Iron Cross. It's really a, a complete hydraulic system, except they drive the hydraulic pumps with electric motors instead of engines, and uh, and uh, they balance all the controls and so on. And then they, they of course, they feed in the uh, the uh, 
wind tunnel data so that they can predict what the airplane characteristics are, and you see that on the instrument panel. It's a, it's a fixed base simulator, but you're actually moving the, the surfaces that are similar to what you are, so you can reduce frictions and you can find out a lot of things. For instance, we found out that the supports on the rods down through the, the length of that B-70 were too far apart, and we had far too much friction. Well, that came out of that simulator. And every time they do anything like that, they try to get the pilots in there, because the more they can get in there, the more experience they have, so that by the time you get to the airplane, you're pretty familiar with your surroundings and so on. We got into, uh, we started engine run programs on the on the B-70 in July of 64 and we had made a pact an agreement or maybe it was a maybe it was dictated by the Air Force I don't know at least it, from my standpoint uh, I said that only the, every time that airplane was ready to run engines that either Shep or I were going to be there and the Air Force pilots said the same thing so there were only four of us to and there always had to be two of us in the airplane, so it was a long shift between July and September of seven days a week and almost around the clock. But by the time we got through with that engine run program and those taxi tests and all that things, all those things that went on in that three-month period, why we are, I was I was more at home in that cockpit than I was in my own bed. Well, we had slept there and we ate there and we were there all the time. But you knew every crazy little tick that was going on with those with the thing before it, you know, other than the flying end of it. So that kind of that kind of background, I think, is necessary. People say, "Well, gee, weren't you afraid?" Or didn't uh, you know? Uh, gee, it had never been done before, and well, weren't you something afraid something would happen? Well, I think. Your philosophy has to be, and I'm sure that's true of race drivers or, or anybody. That you do every, you fortify yourself with information, and you do everything you possibly can, and you know all those other guys are doing everything they possibly can, and then if you, and then if you think that there's something going to go wrong, going to hurt you, you better get out of there and let somebody else in there. That's the, that's, that's worrying about something you can't do anything about, and you can't afford that, you know. At, at that time, uh, if everything's been done, it can be. Then, uh, then you either go or you don't. And if you're going to go, forget worrying about it and go ahead and do your job. But I think that that uh, we were probably, uh, although maybe we went about it in a little more crude fashion, we didn't have the money to expend on preparation of the pilots. I think we were as well prepared for the first flight of that airplane as any one of the astronauts was for his flights. We had a good simulator. We had a very good ground school. We had good training airplanes. We flew the B-58 and the B-52. We spent a long period of time in that engine run program, and I just don't know anything else that we could have done. Oh, yeah. We were responsible for riding the, at least the final all of the flight test procedures, all of the handbook procedures, we had to, we had to outline what the procedures were. They were written by the people who write handbooks, and then we had to approve the final versions, and we had to put them in all the format that we wanted to use. So, you know, you 
after uh, three or four years of working with the design groups and everything, you're pretty knowledgeable about the airplane. So I thought I was probably as well prepared for anything, uh, better prepared for that than anything else I've ever done in my life. So the flying was just sort of a, uh, the biggest thrill, yeah, but uh, almost uh, just proof of the pudding, you know. Yeah, this, this is what I wanted to ask you about now, because when you actually mm -hmm. got into the, uh, the the aircraft for the first time and took it up, um, uh, were there any nasty surprises? Or well, we had some mechanical problems uh, on the first flight, but uh, uh, no, and those those things surprise you know, but no, really no big surprises. I think uh, if you're if you're asking me, um, uh, well, did I did maybe did it did I respond right or did I respond the way I thought I would? I'll, I'll give you a funny little example. Um, when we landed, after we landed, and and during the the post-flight debriefing, they had asked me. Uh, what kind of wheel force or stick force did it take to rotate the airplane? <clears throat> I'm going to go back for a minute and <clears throat> tell you why they asked me that. We had had a quite a lengthy discussion on whether we would do taxi tests uh, up to nose wheel liftoff speed or not with the airplane. Now that, that almost always is done if you've got the room and the and the capability like if you had the lake bed and at Edwards in the long runway. Well we had a, a very heavy airplane, even even in the taxi configuration it was well over three hundred and say three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. We had a twelve thousand foot runway, that's that's for sure. But we had a, a brake system that had never been tried before. We had a parachute system, a braking chute system that we hadn't had a chance to try before. And we had a, uh, if, if you broke the nose wheel off of that airplane, you can imagine what a catastrophe that would be. Uh, so we decided that there had never been an airplane that, or at least it was one of my opinions, that there had never been an airplane that failed to rotate on takeoff. But there had been a lot of them that had had brake failures, and we had we had one that I knew of in the F-107. So uh, we decided to that it put a little bit more burden on the pilot because he wasn't going to be absolutely sure of what kind of force it would take to rotate it or what the response was going to be, uh, but that we would have a safety factor of not going that fast, getting up to 105 knots or whatever it was for rotation, and then have faced with the problem of stopping the airplane on the runway. The Air Force didn't like that, but we we finally won that argument. And so one of the concerns when it came back, or one of the concerns was, you know, what the forces were and how well the airplane responded. And uh, so they asked me how much force I applied, and I said, oh, it, it, you know, and you get used to stick forces and wheel forces and so on. I said I thought it was probably 35, 40 pounds. Well, we looked at the data after we got the data back, and I had it pulled 90 pounds. <laughs> so the adrenaline was running, obviously. You know, that's what it's telling you. And, and the, the rotation was, from the pictures, 
never having had anything to compare it with of that size, it looked good at first. And then after we after we flew the airplane for a while and found out what the optimum weight was to rotate the airplane, he could see that the rotation on the first flight was a little fast, and the airplane. The airplane came off the ground fine because we had the flying speed, but it uh, it came off rather had a, a rather steep attitude too. You had you had um, power control flight, though, didn't you? Yes, all power control. I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the, the run of these bars. Well, the uh, Are these manual override or no the uh, the way that system was they were actually cables but they were like steel clad cables. And they ran to the the actuators. The hydraulic actuators are all way back in the back um, of the airplane, so it was a mechanical connection from the back of the airplane up to the cockpit. So you kept all the hydraulics in the back. Mm-hmm. Once she was in the air, how did she behave as a flying machine? Well, the the airplane had a couple of funny characteristics. Uh, it, l- let me let me defend anybody that that might feel badly about it uh, in that we never aerodynamically optimized that airplane you know it was a it was a first guess at something and it uh, came out that way well it had a canard as you know uh, control system that those little uh, flight control systems up front and they were like knife blades very sharp bleeding edge sharp trailing edge uh, designed for high-speed flight. They had flaps on the trailing edge, but uh, with the flaps up, they were they were uh, just a knife blade-like affair. And evidently, there was some. We found out later there was some span-wise flow there. Uh, these things weren't optimized for low-speed flight. And up to about. I think it was, as I recall now, about 8.85 Mach number. The airplane, there was a vibration in the airplane, like a, a, a like a buffeting that you'd get with gear and flaps. And at first, on the first flight, since we never got the gear up on the first flight, I thought that was because of the gear and flaps. We got the flaps up, but we never got the gear up. Then the second flight, when we got them up, uh, and we still buffeted. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know the answer to that. Nobody else did either. But at, anyway, at, at, as we climbed out and we get to 8.5 Mach number, it was just like you were driving down the car, or down the road in, in your car with several windows open and you got that buffeting and then you close all the windows and it smooths out and it's just smooth as glass. Well, at that Mach number, it would smooth out and from then on it was just as smooth as glass. And it, it turned out that it was later on. It was that that the, the spanwise flow was buffeting this thing, and that was shaking the the whole front end of the airplane in that in that buffeting mode. And at that particular point, the tufts all straightened out, and the flow evened out, and the airplane went on. From that was so you had it tufted and the camera mounted and everything. Later we did, yeah. yeah. And in fact, just before uh, only a few flights before the. Uh, the accident, uh, they hadn't done that. It was all that, you know, we were, as I said, they didn't, they were getting to that point where we had accomplished most of the, of the milestones of the thing and they were looking for things that, you know, that could improve this thing. I think that the airplane wasn't hard to fly, but the airplane required an awful lot of attention because it had no autopilot systems, no automatic systems. 
Yeah. Were, they, were they planned in later models? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, in production they would be. It had no, it just had uh, really r- rate dampers. It didn't have any, they call it a stability augmentation system, but they were really just dampers. Roll, yaw, and pitch. And it had a, a very strong adverse yaw due to aileron. If I put aileron in to roll the airplane to the right, uh, it would yaw the nose to the left. Very strong. In fact, the ailerons would produce more yawing moment than the rudders would. Now, particularly with the wingtips up, when you put the wingtips, when you start to fold the wingtips, the outboard two segments of the wingtips were locked. So you lost uh, not only the outboard, the ones with the biggest moment arm, but the but but thirty percent or a third of the surface, uh, probably more than half of the control because of the moment arm out to it. But even so, with the with the wingtips in the half position, which we evolved into, as soon as we got the gear and flaps up, we'd always put the wingtips to half because the airplane just flew better because of this very very strong adverse yaw due to aileron which said that you had to lead every turn with a rudder and if you if you drove it like you did like you do a lot of airplanes you just drove it around with ailerons you know when you wanted to bank you just put an aileron all you would all that would happen when you put the aileron in was you'd yaw it the other way okay mm-hmm. and as you yawed it the other way like now I'm, I'm, to, to make it clear if I put right aileron in and I want to bank to the right mm-hmm. and turn to the right the nose would yaw to the left, okay? And because of the very strong dihedral effect, the nose has gone left now, so I'm going to get more lift on my right wing. It would cancel out the roll that I put in with ailerons, and all that happened was the nose would go left. In fact, the first time Shep flew the airplane, we were climbing out, and he got into some turbulence, and a, and a wing dropped down, and he just put aileron in, and the airplane started to yaw the opposite direction, and pretty soon the ball's going out, and he said, what's the matter? <laughs> I said, just let go of the aileron, and he let go of the aileron, and the airplane righted itself. You know, it, it went into a bank, but then it righted. I said, no. When that, I said, keep your eye on that yaw meter, and when it goes out, correct it with a, correct it with a, with a rudder, mm. and, and lead everything with a rudder. Did it have a system of ailerons, though, really? I mean, you didn't have a- ailerons as such. Did you, did you have well, they were ailerons, yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were mm-hmm. ailerons, I'm sorry. Yeah, they were ailerons. No, I just wanted to clarify, in case you had separate services for each function. No. Mm-hmm. We had uh, we had a... Uh, oh, we'll get to that later. But uh, anyway, when you consider the... When you consider that the, the yaw due to the aileron input and the very strong dihedral effect... Uh, you had a combination that you had to be very careful of. You couldn't you couldn't go driving around ever. Even even at, at very high speeds, where you were very, where you had very, very very stiff directional stability with the wingtips down. Right? You you had to you still had to be careful. But you, it was a rudder airplane. Mm-hmm. It was like the old BT trainer. You know, you led with the rudder everything you did. And it was just kind of contrary to what. We, uh, what what were the transonic qualities like? 
Uh, Fairly automatic, or did you have to feed it through? No, there wasn't really... Uh, it was almost unnoticeable. In fact, the first time... The first time we went... was on the third flight that we went supersonic. Uh, uh, I had a problem, but it wasn't... It had nothing to do with... Uh, with the normal things that you think about in going supersonic. Go back to the F-100 for a for a minute or two. The first F-100s, when they when they went supersonic, they and all airplanes do it. They go through this big trim change. You you get a shift in the center of pressure on the wing, and that makes a longitudinal or a pitch trim change. Uh, most of the later airplanes put a what they call a mock box in there, an automatic trim system that trimmed that out, and you never knew it happened. But when the F-100 was built, the Air Force didn't want those any more black boxes in it than, than they had to. So we had that thing you had to trim out. And if you got the maneuvering around right in that trim change area, you want, you'd be way out of trim one way at one time. And if you slowed down a little bit, you'd be way out the other way. And, you know, and it, was, it was bothersome. So they eventually put uh, systems in to take care of that. Well, you would expect that kind of thing, but with the great big long when we didn't have that as I recall we didn't have that any automatic trimming system in the B-70 but that pitch trim change wasn't that big it was there after I got used to the airplane I could feel it and I noticed that I would you know that I would do some little trimming there but to go back to the first time we went supersonic but what, uh, you trimmed through the canal did you or yes that's that the yes. trimming surface yes when the flaps were up mm. The canard was the trimming surface. When the flaps were down, the canard was fixed. And uh, and be, uh, when the when the flaps were down, if you went to uh, I think the I've forgotten the position that the if I put the flaps down, the canard automatically went to to a fixed position. I think it was nose down, if I'm not mistaken. Tra or uh, leading edge of the canard down. Mm -hmm. If you got it too high, you got you got too much of a a lifting surface on the front of the airplane, and you you could get unstable. And it was an all-moving surface, was it? It was a it was a um, it was a. Uh, let me see. You know, we went through that iteration so much. No, it was a trimmable surface, as I recall. And the whole surface moved, did it? Oh yes, yeah, the whole like surface. A yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I digressed a little bit. Yeah. Well, uh, the the reason for that go into a fixed position with the flaps down was now I trim the ailerons and, and or, or the elevons and when I trim when I trim the elevons to put lifting surface on the back of get lift back there to balance the lift up front actually what I have now is a flap on a, on a delta wing which you know we hadn't had before you could actually the neutral position on final approach with the flaps down on the canard the elevons would be down somewhat, which meant it had a flap back here on the back end of it. Do you know the 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 reasoning why they had a what their what their initial reasoning was for the canard on the airplane? If you look at a if you look at a uh, well, let's take an airplane like the uh, well any high speeder. I, I don't want to get into the YF twelve because I don't know how much of that's classified and how much isn't. But any airplane that, that flies at a high speed, let's take the B-58, huh? As you go faster, 
the center of pressure moves back on the wing. Uh, so you have to trim back that the, air, the nose of the airplane wants to go down. You have to trim back. That brings the elevon the elevons on the back up, and that creates a lot of drag. Okay, so you're fighting that drag. So one of the things you do, and the B-58 did it to a certain extent, is you transfer fuel aft, and you push your CG aft so that you can reduce that drag, still stay within CG limits, but reduce that drag. The farther back you can get the CG, the better. Well, we had the same problem with the B-70. You don't want to fly around it. We didn't with... You don't really want to fly around, at least in those days you didn't, with uh, neutral stability. That's the only way you could have those surfaces streamlined back there. The other way to do it, and, and, and by the way, when those surfaces are up, they're creating a down force. They're, they're contrary to lift, okay? Now, if I, if I can, instead of, of creating this down force on the back, which is tending to lift the nose, if I can lift the nose and keep these streamlined back here, I've reduced all this drag. Now that lifting surface up front creates some drag, no, no doubt about it, some drag, but not as much as these being up back here on the back end of the airplane. Plus the fact that it's, it's a lifting force and not a down force, so it has to. Now, there, there are a lot of arguments, and the aerodynamicists are still arguing about whether it was a, was a low drag or high drag configuration, and I don't get into that argument. But that's the explanation that was given to me, which made some sense to me. And, and I don't think that, uh, that that, I think that that canard system probably could have been optimized, and we could have reduced the drag on the airplane considerably uh, if we had gone that far with that, with the development. Anyway, back to the what we were talking transonic. about. The transonic thing. The first, the the uh, first time we went supersonic, they uh, uh, predicted that we would probably put the the uh, wingtips down. I think we were to go down to half at some supersonic speed, and then down to full down the 65 degree angle at uh, at uh, 1.4 Mach number. So we went supersonic the first time with the wingtips up in the, in the full up position. And uh, they wanted me to do a side slip and I started doing a side slip and I got a little aileron into it and the aileron took over and I, and I let go of the rudder and the aileron was holding the yaw in there and I said, hey, there's something wrong here. <laughs> I'm still, I've, I've released the rudder and I'm still in the side slip. And immediately that says to you that that I'm, I'm real loose directionally, doesn't it? You, you put an airplane in a side slip and then let go of it and it stays there. You say, hey, what's, <laughs> what's something wrong here? So we decelerated and got out of the situation and came down and then of course when the guys analyzed the data they said well you, you were holding it in there with the aileron and I wasn't aware that the little bit of aileron that I was holding because if I let go of the aileron the wing was going to go down so I'm holding the aileron in it and I wasn't really aware that that, that that was my first big clue into this how, how powerful those ailerons were in creating yaw. So to recover from it you had to go positively the other way with the ailerons? Yeah well if if you yeah you had to let go of it or go the other way yeah. and as soon as you did it would roll over there mm. and then then you just fly out of it but, and I'm sure I wallowed around up there quite a little bit those first few flights. Uh, we had a 
we had a yaw meter installed uh, I can't remember which way it was I guess we had a side slip meter installed on there, and this is a needle rather than a little ball you know we had a needle and it was connected to the vein and and uh, Shep and I had and he was the backup my backup pilot Van Shepard um, had been flying uh, everything with yaw meters the Air Force flew everything with side slip meters and they're opposite to each other if I yaw the airplane nose left I'm actually side slipping to the right okay so if I put yaw on it it says left yaw but if it's if I put side slip on it, it says right and you got to read the meter and decide what to do with the rudders we we uh, were sort of at a we had two Air Force pilots and two company pilots and I said Shep we got to learn to be big boys we'll fly it their way we put that side slip uh, indicator in there and we turned out that that we all four agreed that was probably one of the most important instruments we had in the airplane by the time we got through flying the airplane because you had your eye on that thing all the time when you were doing any kind of maneuver system um, but that was with your wingtips up well no that was true all the time but it was was much more pronounced because with the wingtips up see the thing that, that one of the things that happened was you had a lot more aileron control with the wingtips up one. Secondly, when you start to put the wingtips down, if I were to yaw the nose to the left, say, now the, the, the air is approaching more from the right of the airplane. Is that, that not true? If I've got a tip down over here, it's tending to force that wing down. Now, the dihedral wants to make that wing go up, but the the tip had a negative dihedral effect. It wasn't pow it wasn't powerful enough to to uh, overcome the positive dihedral, but it had an effect anyway. So two things happened when I put the wingtips down. One is I lost part of the aileron that was creating a lot of this yaw, and secondly, I got some of the positive dihedral was canceled by the negative dihedral effect of having the wingtip down. And at high speed, when I had the wing tip down all the way of course that that it, it was better it was a better flying airplane with the wingtips down by far than it was with the wingtips up mm-hmm. so we, what we found out was that that we could fly the airplane with the wingtips in the half position at uh, you know like 300 knots on up so when we took off it we, after about four or five flights or someplace in that area we well, I think it was Shortly after that third flight, we decided, well, we'll try to fly it subsonically with the wingtips at half, and it flew very well. It almost bit us once. It almost bit us once. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't mean to be telling stories on anybody because it was kind of a funny series of events. But we had a our capsule in the airplane had a. Uh, a control device, a little, uh, like a little stick grip type of thing with a with a lateral and longitudinal, the little uh, coolie hat type of trim switch on it, stored up in the capsule. And if you, the capsule uh, concept was that if you lost pressurization in the V-70 at high altitude, 
that you could encapsulate, and the, inca the capsule itself was pressurized, and it would take you to a level of about 30, 35,000 feet, and it had a window in the front of it. So in order to get away from the pressure suit and have what we call the shirt sleeve concept, you had this backup pressure vessel that you could get into, but then you had to be able to fly the airplane. So we had a we had a device in there where you could beep the throttles off because the throttles were electric, and you could trim the airplane in pitch and yaw and, and roll and roll. So you could you could descend with this thing from within the castle, and then when you got down to thirty-five or forty thousand feet, you you were of course supposed to wear an oxygen mask. You could come back out of the capsule and take over manually and go ahead and fly the airplane. Well, there was some question about whether that system was adequate and whether it would, in fact, work. So we had one test one day when the, they asked if I would, uh, you know, if we would demonstrate controlling the airplane from within the capsule. So I went, uh, this this was a day when uh, Cotton was in the left seat, and it was one of his early flights in the airplane in the left seat. And I went in the capsule in the right side, and the, I have to explain another facet of this thing. The, the, uh, the uh, pitch trim system in the airplane was a... Um, uh, something that I wanted, that we had in the F-107 and I wanted in the B-7, it was what we called a position trim. Uh, beeping trim buttons, at times if you get too great a uh, trim rate motor, you know, too great a speed, you, you get bumps in trim, you don't, you can't trim smoothly. Where back in the old days when you had the big old wheel, you know, you could trim it at slower, fast rates and as much or a little as you wanted. So I wanted something like that, and they, they built one of those on the F-107, and it was a, just a little rheostat wheel, and you rolled it at, at whatever speed you wanted to. Now, obviously, the, the maximum speed of the, of the trim motor was the maximum you could get, but you could, you could slow it down if you wanted to. You could trim very slowly, or you could trim very fast, which gave pilots the, the flexibility of trimming the way they wanted to trim. And then, in, in, in addition to that, we had a backup trim system. And if I hit the backup trim switch, I canceled out this rheostat thing. Now I'm on a different circuit altogether. Well, the, the trim system inside the capsule was on the backup trim switch. So when I hit that, I'm on a backup trim switch, and I've knocked the other one out. And then I'd have to, in order to get it back, I'd have to go and reset it, okay? So I'm in the airplane, I'm in the capsule, I get in the capsule and I fly the airplane around and, and I beep the power back and made a descent and leveled out and did this whole thing and demonstrated it could be done, really. Not, not from, we didn't, we hadn't tried it from supersonic flight, but we did demonstrate at about 45,000 that, you know, we could do this. So I came back out of the capsule and we did, well, it was about the last uh, uh, test in our program for the day. Cotton made the descent, and uh, we said that we were going to hold the wingtips. Chase pilots always called wingtips if we forgot them. We're going to hold the wingtips for a little while. So we went by the wingtip, raising the wingtip thing on the checklist, and got down, and he was just getting ready to turn into final on a real wide base, and he called for flaps. Put the flaps down, 
and, the, and when you put the flaps down, you had to trim forward to get those elevons down back there. You had to trim forward about, I think it was three or four rolls on the trim switch. And we got to the point where we'd put the flap switch down, throw in three or four rolls, and it all come out just right because the trim motor was running at the same speed the flaps were, and you stayed in trim. He throws in three or four rolls, and all of a sudden the nose of the airplane starts to come up. <laughs> he's got the wheel all the way against the stop, and he's got the throttles back. And the airspeed is going down. The airspeed's down to about 180, and we're, that's pretty slow for that big airplane. And I hit the throttles. I hit the throttles and got the power on and, and yelled at him, and we got the flaps up and got out of it. And what had happened was we still had the wingtips down. And when you have the wingtips down, you lose a lot of longitudinal stability. The airplane is at slow speed, gets very, very loose longitudinally, see. So when the flaps went down, it pitched it up, and we didn't have enough control to arrest it. And he thought he had it with a trim, but the trim had been canceled by my last. We hadn't. He hadn't reset the trim. So we, we got out of it. But I tell you, we came awful close. We were coming, we were sinking like mad at, at fairly well, we just low. Took the up quickly, well, we put the flaps up and canceled out that, mm-hmm. that big lifting force on the front. And, uh, and then as we were flying around, we realized we didn't have any trim. And then somebody said, have you reset the trim? And we hadn't reset the trim. And so we finally we worked, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was just a comedy of errors, but it just damn near cost us an yeah. accident. Funny things, not funny. It was no, some interesting. Yeah, one of those. Can you tell me a bit um, now on, on the the way she behaved on up to, to Mark III? Because I mean, obviously, the significance of the aircraft is its Mark III capability. And uh, what was she like when you started reaching to this extreme end of the performance uh, envelope? How much time have you got? <laughs> How much time have you got? I mean, I've got another roll of tape. This is an interview with Al White in Los Angeles on Friday the 18th of May, 79. A couple of the interesting things about how the, the experiences we went through with this airplane. Uh, I think the first we, we had, well, I know I, I shouldn't bore you with all of them, I guess. No, I yeah. always cut it out. If I haven't got it, I, I the, uh, the, uh, the one that I guess impressed me or, or is sort of indelible in my memory was, I think, about the 12th flight in Fitzfulton and I were flying. And we were at uh, something like 2-6 Mach number or something the first time we had been that fast. And about 65,000 feet. And uh, the airplane had a uh, the inlet ducts, as you probably know, there were three engines in each duct, and they had these big translating doors inside that that, uh, that uh, arranged the geometry of the throat to control the shock waves and give you the right uh, <clears throat> pressure recovery. At Mach three, by the way, the the pressure ratio between the ambient pressure outside of the airplane and the engine face pressure was 30 to 1. So the duct was a was a very efficient air compressor. We didn't we didn't need the compressor sections in the engines at all at much. We really needed ramjets. Yeah, if you could have done away with a compressor section in it. Um, 
but at any rate, uh, obviously there's a there's a big pressure build up in there, and there's a lot of air being crammed in there then. So they had uh, they had bypass doors on the top of the wings that where you could spill pressure out of that area in front of the engine face. Well, we're busting along there, and uh, number five engine vibration. We had vibration indicators on the engines. Vibration went ape, just went completely off the board, and uh, immediately behind it, the uh, EGT started to go. So I <laughs> reflex action, shut the engine down. And when I did, Fitz is sitting over there, and he's got he's got throat switches and bypass door switches. We had a little gadget that we had designed that flopped down and right in front of him like a sat right between his knees like a keyboard and he dialed these things and he had gauges up there to keep the throat at a certain place and keep you know pressures at a certain level and so on and it was a full full-time job you know handling the fuel system and the and the inlets on that airplane manually was a full-time job we'd get down after the flights and and uh he'd say well how did you do today and the guy said i did fine how did you do you know he hardly knew what the other guy was doing just that he was doing his job well anyway He's over there, and I cut this engine. Well, I, I just shut one engine down, and I reduced the requirement for one third of the air that was going in and in like that, without any warning. And it went into what they call duck buzz. It, the the pressure buildup was big enough that it spit the whole family of shockwaves out the front. And then when, when it does that, it relieves the pressure in there, and of course everything's set for it, so it sucks it right back in again, and it builds the pressure up and spits it out again and it and it just goes through that cycle and it's about a two cycle per second uh, phenomenon just so happens it also so happens that if you took the front end of that fuselage and disturbed it that it that it oscillates at two cycles per second so it was <laughs> it was an amplifying driving force that was driving this fuselage up here and we started out going like this and it was building up and I shut the augmentation system off thinking you know the damn dampers have gone ape on me I don't know what the hell's happening and then the airplane just started wallowing around I'm trying to control it and I look over and, and engines number four and six now have gone ape what sort of speed do you think this time? I started at 2.6, two, two, two or 2.65, right in that 2.7, someplace in that speed. And right? height? About 65,000. And we're up, oh hell, I don't know, around uh, Windover or something, headed south. No chase airplanes with us anymore, you know. We dropped them way off back at about, we, we get away from them at about 1.8 Mach number, and then that's the last we see them until we're coming back in. Because our trip used to go up around, you know, through Oregon and Idaho and around down. And so then it, these two went over. Well, when the first one happened, no no warning light came on. And the, th the thing stopped. It stopped when I shut the augmentation. Other than the wallowing around, this terrible thing stopped. And... Uh, so then when the other two went, and I, sh I shut them down suddenly, and again, without warning to Fitz, and this time, it really took off, because now I shut off all of it. On one side? Yeah. I shut down all three engines, and I had pulled everything to idle, and I 
shut those two down because the temperatures are going out of sight, the vibrations going eight. And this time it went in a duck buzz, and and this again, and this time, but this time the duck buzz light, the warning light lit, and when the warning light lit, Fitz knew what it was, and he banged it. The bypass doors open and spilled all that air out of there, and it stopped. But when the first one, <laughs> the, the engineer said that was an incipient one. It, you know, it wasn't high enough pressure fluctuations to light the buzz warning light. Of course, we're sitting up there just going like this. I said, incipient, my butt, you know. <laughs> you, better re- you better reset the, well, this was after when we looked at it. You better reset that damn buzz warning light because you shake the airplane apart and never light the light. Well, anyway, we uh, we jerked the, I jerked the throttles off and I shut those down and we got out of that one when he opened the bypass doors, but now we had about 40 warning lights, you know, and I guess 20 of them are lit. And we're <clears throat> we're headed downhill. We're slowing down. And uh, I'm talking to them, and I'm trying to get a steer home. Because, you know, they were radar tracking us. And we had one tech end set in that airplane. And most of the time, I was dependent on these radar guys to tell me where the hell I was. I said, just, I don't care. He said, you're going across the restricted area. I said, I don't care where I'm going. Just give me a head, you know, just steer me home. And then get on the telephone and clear me. But don't, you know, I got three engines out, and I don't know what's going on in this airplane. And I'm coming downhill rather fast. Well, uh, we go through about 1.5 Mach number. The airplane had an RPM lockup in it that... That regardless of where the few where the throttles were, if they were below military power, military power is just below afterburner, uh, any place, the RPM lockup locked the fuel control to to supply enough fuel to keep the engines turning at a hundred percent. They thought if the, if the if the engines spooled down at those high speeds that they might stall. Well, the, the RPM lockup was in. It was a it was a function that we selected on acceleration, and it was in. When I pulled his throttles back, I got the throttles at idle now, but the engines that are running at 100 RPM, 100% RPM, the three on the on the left. We go through 1.5 Mach number, the lockup comes out, and go, boom, all three of them go to idle. The gauges on an idle, the EGT gauges and the RPM gauges, read the same at idle as they do at zero, because, you know, the gauges don't even start until you get probably to idle RPM. I, in the excitement of all, Fitz and I both thought we lost the other three engines. And I said, I just lost the other three. <laughs> well, another feature of the airplane, there was no... Did you have your afterburners lit all this time as well? No, I was in idle. I had all the way back. No, but when, you, when all this trouble started... When it started, yeah. yeah. And everything was... Yeah. And we were at full bore. And uh, anyway... <laughs> The, uh, the airplane had no battery in it, and it had electrical throttles. It had two generators, a generator on on uh, engine three and a generator on engine four, and it had a then a backup hydraulic-driven generator uh, that ran off of the hydraulic system on the right side of the airplane, the utility hydraulic system. And so I've got number four engine shut down, I've got the whole right side shut down, and I don't. 
I don't know for sure whether this windmilling fast enough to keep that hydraulic thing going. And when I lost what I thought when I lost the other three, since these over here had all over temped and gone over on vibration and these were acting fairly normal, what I thought was I got to find a way to get these started and, and particularly number three to get the generator back because I don't want to lose electrical power. Then I have control over nothing, you know, and then I'm, I'm just out of business. So, so how do you air start a, a, a jet engine? Well, you, you pull a throttle to idle cut off and you hit the air start switch and then you put it back in to get the fuel back. Well, I cut it off. And when I cut it off, I cut off the only generator we had. <laughs> it got quiet and dark. And <laughs> but you had generators on all the engines, didn't you? No, just, just two, just three just and four. <laughs> and suddenly, we didn't have anything, you know. Well, during that period of time, we're both groping around the cockpit, and Fitz discovered that, that engines one and two were, or engine at least engine number one was running. So he, he reaches over, and he pushes engine number one, which is the one on the outboard over here, you know, all the way in the afterburner, and the big old airplane goes, you! <laughs> oh. So then we just, it was discovered now, and in the meantime, I'm getting number three started, so we got the generator back on the line. But we had another funny little tick. We had a another the ARC fifty UHF radios in the airplane were development at that time. And this thing had a funny thing. When you turn them on, if you cut them off in the air and turn them back on, your receiver came on immediately. But it took about thirty to forty five seconds for the transmitter to get transmitting capability. And when I got number three started and got the generator back on the line, and then found out now that we got power on three engines, you know. I can hear these guys, they're in an absolute panic down there, you know, you know, yelling at the chase airplanes, and where is he, and does anybody see him, and all this stuff, and I can't talk to him, you know, I can't, for about 45 seconds, I couldn't talk to him, we finally told him that we had, we had number one, two, and three going again, and that we were, we were, what altitude we were, and what lockdown, and we were down almost subsonic at that time, about 20,000 feet, and we were coming home. And on the way in, I decided, well, I, don't, I still don't know what happened in engines one, two, and three. We still haven't figured this out, you know, because I'll tell you, you're, you're, it's a traumatic situation. The adrenaline's flowing, and you're not, you're, you're not really thinking as clearly as possibly as you could. Neither one of us figured a damn thing out until we got on the ground. So I said, oh, I'm going to air start one of these engines on the right side so that I make sure that I got that hydraulic system working over there. I'm going to try to air start one of them. I figured number five was probably the best because it had gone the least overboard. So I air started number five and it started. <laughs> I had the damn engine running at full throttle and it was getting 80% RPM. The temperature was staying within limits and it sat there and run. I don't know how much thrust it was giving us, but it, at least it kept the hydraulic system. That was the only one with hydraulic pumps on, was it? Well, no, they had, every one of them had hydraulic pumps. Everyone had two hydraulic pumps. Mm -hmm. They had six utilities and six primaries. They had 12 hydraulic pumps, 4,000 PSI. But the hydraulic pump over there was what was running. The, if, if I lost everything, would run the backup generator, see? That's what, I, that's what I was after. I wanted some backup on electrical power. Well, anyway, we landed that way, and we got it on the ground, and we are sitting out there waiting for him to come and fish us out of the airplane, and I said, Fitz, I'll bet you that damn lockup is what did it. And then we got talking about it, and sure enough, that was that RPM lockup that 
caused us all our <laughs> our problems. Well, what had happened on the, on the engine that went hot in the first place? What happened was that a, a hook of stainless steel, about half as big as the top of this desk, in the apex of the wing, that the skin and off of this whole thing right here, that whole tip came off and went down an inlet duct. Mm. And it just mangled those engines. I've, I've got a, I don't have it here, I guess, but I've got a compressor blade and a turbine bucket out of that. The right, right, the apex point of that wing. Yeah. 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 And how, well, long, how long a piece was it? Oh, I'd say it was uh, that long. About a yard long. Probably yeah. that wide. Yeah. Was, I'd say in, in surface about as big as this piece of the top of the desk. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it hit number five engine. Mm. And of course the engine tends to want to spit it out the yeah. way the blades are, and it spit it out, and then the mm. pieces are going in the head. Mm. So mm. I got a picture of it there. I don't know. If, you, if you're interested in picking of telling him, uh, let's get ready to get out of this thing, you know. Because mm. one of the things, when we shut the electrical power off, we had all electric flight instruments as well. And I'm sitting there looking at, a, at an instrument that's reading a certain airspeed, had a red flag in it, but I'm reading the airspeed. We had vertical tape mm. instruments. I'm reading an airspeed that uh, has a flag in front of it, and uh, and I'm trying to fly it. I'm trying to maintain that airspeed, and it was absolutely dead, which told me something about flags. If you're going to put a flag up on a on an instrument that you don't want a guy to read, put the flag over the top of it so he can't read it. Don't just put it up in a corner someplace and say, uh, you know. Well, Pete Knight was telling me of a similar experience he had on the X-15 when he lost everything, when his APUs shut down. And that was... Uh, Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, where the heck? It was about Mark 4 5 or something that happened there. Right on the apex of his trajectory. I think some of the things that impressed me were it was a very stiff airplane longitudinally. We had about a 9% static margin, which is very high. Most airplanes are probably around 3 which meant that, you know, lots of longitudinal stability, lots of directional stability. As I said you had to be careful with the, with the uh, uh, going into a roll too fast, you know, even, even with all the directional stability, you could still create some yaw. And the yaw had some effect on the inlet, the, uh, the function of the inlet ducts. We had some, we call unstarts, you know, when the duct spits the family of shockways out. First one we had at Mach 3, it sounds just like you, uh, like you ran over a 10-ton truck. It makes the damnedest noise and shakes and shudders in the airplane. Obviously, when that pressure wave comes out of that duct, it's going to pitch the nose. It's, it's hitting forward on the wing, so it's going to pitch it up. It's going to push on the, on the splitter, cause yaw, and it's, gonna, it's only pushing up on one side, so it causes some roll. So, mm. It gives you a transient in all three axes in the airplane, but the noise is just mm -hmm. frightening, just absolutely scary to death. The first time it happened, the first time we had one, we 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 ran a bunch of tests on, and purposely unstarted the engine or the the ducts at at lower speeds. The first time we had an inadvertent one at Mach three, and <laughs> just wow, you know. <laughs> You're sitting there like, what the hell was that? And then, of course, the nice thing about it is that at that time was that it yawed 
disturb the airplane enough and the airflow in front of the airplane that within about five to ten seconds the other one unstarted and then everything balanced itself out, you know, when the airplane starts to decelerate very fairly rapidly. But the day we had that was kind of funny. We were we were coming down on the east side of the of the uh, loop, and we used to turn, uh, come down across Wendover and down towards the Salton Sea, and then down maybe past Wickenburg, Arizona, and turn across the Salton Sea and come back in Edwards. And you know that at a in a twenty degree bank turn at Mach three, the the radius of the turn is over one hundred and fifty miles, nautical miles. So you're you're covering a lot of real estate. It takes you a great, you know, you travel you travel uh, uh, 350 miles or something like that, and, and it takes you I don't know I've forgotten how many minutes, but it's a you know it's a big maneuver just to make a 180 degree turn at that speed. Because see you're traveling 33 miles a minute. Well anyway we're coming down, and these fouls on the ground were at Mach three, and it was one of the earlier Mach three. Cotton and I are flying. Cotton's in the right seat and, and uh, running the inlet tucks. And they said, "Can you hold it? Um, uh, can you give us one more minute at Mach 3? And I said, "One more minute, and I'm not going to stay out of Mexico." You know. Well, give us as much as you can. Okay. So we went about, and we had big orders. You know, don't violate the international boundaries for the airplane. So we had about another 45 seconds, I guess, and I'm just starting to turn, and when I rolled into the turn, it was the first time we had the unstart at Mach 3, and then one of them blew. And when it blew, you know, the first thing you do is right the wings and say, what? You know, and about that time, the other one went off, and, it, and that took probably another 30 or seconds or so for us to get ourselves oriented, you know, as to what the hell was going on, what we should do about this. 30 seconds to a minute. And now... Right through Mexico, we went because you you just you you know you can't realize how how big the radius of this damn thing is, you know. Mm-hmm. So we actually did nick down into Mexico and came back up over San Diego. And it took us 300 nautical miles to get from Mach three down to uh, to uh, you know someplace subsonic and in the area of Edwards, 300 nautical miles out. So. If I came back across Edwards at Mach 3, and I'd be fairly low on fuel, and I'd pull the throttles back, and I'd go clear up around Bishop and everything in the circle coming back, and when I'm headed away, they'd say, turn! And I'd say, I'm turning as hard as I can. You can't turn it, you know, going that fast, you can't turn it any quicker. You can't pull a 2G turn in that kind of an airplane. So it's really, it's something, it's a a facet that you have to get used to. of maneuvering the airplane to get it down, but back to the subject of how did it handle uh, flight control wise I think it wasn't uh, it flew better probably at high speed than at low speed um, instrumentation wise we had problems uh, something that I still would like to get involved in, and I don't know whether it's been solved yet or not. I've been away from this. I'm mostly involved in general aviation now, so I don't get involved in these highly technical things too much anymore, but if you stop and think about it, uh, at 
the speed you're traveling, a half a degree of error in either heading or pitch, uh, no, a one degree error in heading or pitch is going to give you a, dis a departure from your intended track at a rate of over 3,000 feet per minute. So if you're a one degree off in heading, you're departing your track at something over a half a mile a minute. Okay, And, and if you put a five degree bank in to correct back, it takes about another 20 minutes to get the dabbling back. But that isn't too bad, although we had, when, when I would be off the track that they wanted me on and they would try to correct me, I finally got to the point where you're making 20 degree bank turns to correct maybe two degrees because you know because the radius of turn was so great. Yeah. What sort of indicated airspeed did you have at Mark three at that altitude? Oh, oh boy. Seems to me it was in the run 500 and something. Yeah. I, I I really would be out sticking my neck out on the limb, but I think it was for the 500 and something. It seems to me that the highest indicated airspeed we got to, on the, and it was around 550, and then as you, and that was it, we used to used to do that at 36,000, and we'd be up to about one five Mach number, and then we'd start to climb, and the airspeed would start to go down, the Mach numbers going up, and the altitudes going up, and uh, it, everything was very. But anyway, let me go back to this instrumentation thing mm -hmm. for a minute. Uh, the primary problem we had was altitude. If you try to hold a hard altitude, if you if you translate again that mathematics of one degree pitch attitude change into a rate of climb or rate of descent of 3,000 feet per minute, which is fairly healthy rate of climb or rate of descent, uh, in, in a, on a pitch attitude indicator that the width of the bar that you're looking at is probably one degree. So unless you just sit and watch nothing else but that, you have a hard time maintaining a pitch attitude. You can make a few mistakes uh, if you're busy doing some other things. Coupled on top of that, as you go through the air mass, uh, we fly in uh, 707 or 747 or whatever today, and you fly constant pressure altitude, the absolute altitude above sea level as you go across the country, varies as, as the pressure in the air mass varies, obviously. And everybody's set on 2992 at those altitudes, so they're all, when they get to the same place, they're, they're still, separated, set, they're, the they're still separated. But if I go through there fast enough that those pressure changes are hitting the airplane at a much faster rate, now I'm going to find out that I'm, I'm going to feel the accelerations if I start following. Well, we found that we were hitting those pressure changes so fast that the altimeter would go down, the rate of climb would go down, and by the time I had pushed the nose down, it would be back on the way back up, and I got as much as 5,000 feet off my altitude many times, uh, chasing the altimeter, trying to, and, and, and the, uh, the uh, pressure, uh, the duct pressure limits were uh, for Mach 3 were 70,000 feet and yet I had the airplane at 65,000 feet at Mach 3 a couple of times chasing us down altitude mm -hmm. so we finally decided that we would put a more sensitive uh, attitude indicator in it and try to fly the airplane at 72 to 75,000 feet 
and not chase the altimeter and let the altimeter vary a little bit but try to hold a constant attitude and just let the altimeter but we had problems with that a little bit too because what not necessarily with altitude but we had problems with the Mach indications as well because the airplane was limited to a 3.1 Mach number and our demonstration said that we had to be at 3.0 for for so many minutes uh, and you, there's some instrument error so you have to have a little slop there but the problem was that you, you also hit uh, temperature variations in the atmosphere and we found that we've, we've seen as much as a 40 degree Fahrenheit uh, total temperature change in a period of uh, you know a very short uh, span in in in, a, in in 10 or 15 seconds. Well, that 40 degree total temperature change can mean a, a difference in Mach number, since Mach number is based on temperature. It can mean a difference of uh, as much as uh, maybe a whole tenth of a Mach number. Well, if you're flying at 305 and you hit a flare and you got and you hit a temperature situation where the thing jumps to 3.012 or something like that, you got to haul off the you got to haul off the power and try to get it down there where you're supposed to be, because that's all you got to fly the airplane with. They they may be erroneous, but that's all you got to fly the airplane. With. So we had we had our hands full from the standpoint of of the instrumentation that was telling us what we were doing. You know, we had a, a hands full with that problem quite a bit of the time. It strikes me that if you had today's avionics, the sort of avionics you've got on the, B, on the B1, um, the B70 would be a rather different airplane. I mean, your, your workload would be oh, yeah. dra drastically... Oh, yeah. uh, the B1 was developed... Uh, I, I don't know too much about it, except mm. that I've talked to Charlie Bach a little bit about it. Mm. Some of those people, but I, uh, you know, and I and I know from talking to the engineers at Rockwell that it was it was taken down the road a lot farther than the than the B seventy ever was, and probably a hell of a nice airplane from all I hear. Mm. What about the heating effects? Did you have any problems with those? The aerodynamic heating uh, on on wing leading edges and uh, these sort of things. Well, I don't. We had a lot of uh, we had a lot of problems with. In the in the number one airplane with structure, uh, there were you know it was a it was a, a braised honeycomb construction, and there would be voids in it, and uh, they developed techniques later in the program, I guess, to detect most of these because the number two airplane was an awful lot better than number one. But after every flight, we would have you know they would find uh, places where the skin had buckled and where the and lots of times, <coughs> excuse me. Lots of times, pieces of skin came off. We had uh, the first time we hit Mach three, we had about a twelve foot strip came off the leading edge of the left wing, and it it made an awful bang. Um, I thought for a long time that since we had you know we had fuel leaks in the airplane and the fuel would leak around in that honeycomb that it had actually been blown off. I've since proven to myself and, and heard the experts explain it that that wasn't the case, that it was probably a void there. The heating of that area uh, heated up some more of the brazing evidently and a piece stripped off and got, when, it, when, when the wind caught it, it just ripped it off. The bang was that it hit the side of the fuselage and it hit the, uh, the folded down wingtip. It went through the channel between the fuselage it had evidently bounced off of one and hit the other, mm. and uh, 
it was kind of funny because our our communications link was was hot wired right into the Pentagon, so everybody was listening to us on over the radio, and I, I was cautioned many times to you know watch your language because you get excited sometimes and you you can get colorful and uh, we hit Mach 3 and I said something about there's that big magic number and everybody was so happy and then this great <laughs> this big bang went off and I said to Cotton on interphone what the hell was that or I, we, were, we weren't supposed to talk on interphone we were supposed to talk on the radio all the time so they could hear everything we said I said what the hell was that he said I don't know what it was and I said, well, let's get the hell out of here, meaning let's pull the throttles back and get out of this flight regime. And, of course, immediately the thing was that we were going to bail out of the airplane. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got told about that one. Be careful what you say. <laughs> Would it have been a practical bomber, do you think? Well, if I knew more about the military side of, uh, of what's going on in the world, I'd... I'd uh, I'd be better equipped to answer that. For the concept uh, at the time, uh, which was, you know, going very high and very fast and get there before they can, their defenses could get to you and with all the decoys you had, uh, it certainly sounded practical. And certainly, from my standpoint, uh, flying the airplane would have certainly been a practical thing to do. Yeah, it, it operated... I got to the point, you know, where we were shooting touch-and-go landings with the airplane, and we, we landed it and turned off at the middle uh, uh, taxiway at Edwards and things like that. So from a from the pilot's ability to handle the airplane, yeah, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think that today's people would have any problem with it at all. But whether that was the right concept or not, I, don't, I, I can't address that problem. How about the, how did the wings actually fold down? Because I've looked closely at the hinge, and the, there was no sort of cranking or anything to give it the, the... The hinge itself was a big hydraulic motor, as I understand it, or a series of them, and they were hydraulically lowered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were hydraulic brakes, and the motor just overcome the brake, is the way I understand mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. We never had a bit of trouble with those wings, mm -hmm. ever. Uh, you know, that was a concern in a lot of people's minds as to whether those things would go down together and whether they would do this and that. We never once had a problem with them at all. That's one of the one of the sad points of my career is I didn't fly the X-15 and I didn't fly the Concorde. But I, uh, when I was so deeply involved in the B-70 program, uh, Andre Turcotte and uh, Jean Franqui are good friends. I've known them for, well, I knew Turcotte for a long time before the Concord program came along. And I knew Trubshaw and Cochran for, uh, you know, years through the SETP and through activities over there. So I was over there uh, in Toulouse for something. I can't remember whether I was still at North American or whether I was in, uh, had gone to work for TWA at the time, but I think I was still with uh, with uh, North American, and Andre asked me if I'd like to fly the simulator, and uh, I said I would. And it was a it was a, uh, a fixed base simulator at the time, a landing simulator, mm -hmm. but it had a, a movable screen 
type uh, display. In the display, the, the, sc the screen was large, but the projected image was small, so that when you when you banked the airplane, this thing out there did some things or went over here and whatnot. And the airplane, those kind of airplanes that are that have a very nose high attitude on final approach, when you roll them, you you create some side slip, you know, because you you're just your your uh, roll axis and your path of flight are quite uh, a bit different. And every time they would roll the airplane to make a correction on a final approach, that thing would get away from them, and then they would they had a hard time with it. And I said, "Well, there's we had the same problem." And I said, "It really is. You're trying to land the airplane looking through a knot hole. Is what really what it amounts to. What you need is a bigger display, for one thing. And uh, and they I think eventually got that, and it helped. And I said, "You know, you got to get used to that characteristic, and it's amplified by the kind of display you got." The other thing they were they were concerned about, or at least that I was concerned about, and so they did some work on it was a was the the pitch trim change that you can get with with uh, uh, maybe opening bypass doors or those kind of things. There was some pitch trim change. If you suddenly threw open the doors on the top of the wing in the B seventy, you got to they're you know they're control surfaces of a type. Mm -hmm. He got a pitch trim change, and there was an accident in the in another airplane that that uh, that at least in my uh, view was contributed to by the fact that they got into a pitch trim change that was greater than the control system would handle, and they were flying the airplane at a, at the neutral point or near the neutral point, and and. Trubshaw was telling me that in order to reduce the drag, that at high speed they were going to fly the airplane fairly near the the neutral point. And I said, "Well, I, if I were you, I'd make I'd make a, a real concerted effort to find out what any pitch trim changes could occur from anything else in the airplane, and and find out whether there whether you got a control system that can handle them all. Because if you've no stability and you don't have the control and you get the trim change, you're out of business, boy. You're going to break the airplane up. So we, you know, we had a lot of interchange of, of ideas that came out of the B seventy program just on a friend to friend basis. Yeah. So when I went to work for TWA, I was going to go over there anyway, and and they asked me if I would represent them as a as a uh, as their representative because TWA had the fourth delivery position on the Concorde. And they had their stewardess of the year over there, and, and since I was going to be over there anyway, they asked me if I would represent them. And I had just gotten my captain's rating, although most of the captains on the the, uh, the union, the Airline Pilots Association, took a very dim view of me. Tell me, if you did in fact check out this, this principle of compression lift, you know, with this pattern of shockwaves that were contained in the folding wingtips... <sighs> Well, I, I, you're asking the wrong guy that. I ought to get Stormy over here and tell you. I would, I would think that that uh, uh, I I've been told that that yeah, there was some very definite gains from that. But uh, you know, having not being an aerodynamic system, saying well, we we certainly didn't fly the airplane up there with uh, without the wingtips down, and we certainly couldn't fly it up there without. Uh, the shock. I don't. I wouldn't know how to compare it. I would think that that yes, there was some benefit from it.
but I, I don't I don't know how you would I don't know how I would have any com anything to compare it to. Just to finish now, I wonder if you could just tell me a few things about the F one hundred seven, how it came into existence, uh, how it performed, and why it never went into production. Well, I I don't know uh, uh, why it never went into production, other than you know just uh, I, I wasn't involved in that decision, obviously. But the one hundred seven. I think originally was going to be the oh I think one of the original in some way it was related to the F100 program and it could have been the F100B originally there was never a B built as you know and then I guess there was a requirement for a, or a faster airplane as there almost always is or almost always was in those days and that uh, that uh, bigger engine, uh, the J75, was coming into its own, and, and it evolved. That there was a, there were two prototypes built, the F105 and the F107, and they both employed the the uh, J75 engine. They were both single engine fighters or fighter bombers. Uh, there were some requirements uh, or stores uh, capacity and 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 uh, actually a stores bay in the airplane as I recall and North American <coughs> their version of the thing which they they had uh, the funding to build three of for this competition uh, was the f107 and it had some kind of unusual characteristics first the inlet duct up over the top of the fuselage and behind the pilot's head, uh, it had uh, no ailerons. It had a spoiler deflector lateral control system. How, how did that work? Uh, well, it had a deflector, a, a spoiler on the top and a deflector on the bottom, that, and, it, and it was in in three segments on the wing, and it, it was it was kind of a crude in in the prototype format. It was kind of a crude thing to fly because if you had if you were doing a loop, for instance, and you started in the, the bottom. And you'd have the outboard two segments locked at high speed because otherwise you had too much control, just the inboards. And if you got up on top, and since in the prototype they were manually unlocked, someplace up there you had to reach over and hit that switch or you had no roll control at all when you're down at 100 knots with those just those inboard segments. And it had a, it had obviously, like the F100, it had an all-movable uh, horizontal stabilizer, which was a flyable surface, but this one had an all-movable rudder. The first airplane, I think, that had you know no stabilizer, just all-movable directional control as well. So it was kind of a way-out airplane, and, and then it had that um, stores bay in the bottom, which was a, a you know, it was a, actually a, a symmetrical store, but it, half of it embedded in the fuselage. And so the wetted surface, really, with a store in or store out, was the same. Uh, there's a little bit of profile drag with that and a little bit of drag from the added weight. But the airplane really flew beautifully. We, we've, we had it up to 2.15 Mach number before the 105 had gotten, I think they had only been up to about 1.6, and the 104 was limited, compressor inlet temperature limited at about 1.85, and we were flying above Mach 2 with the airplane. I had a I had a great experience in it. I was doing the store drop program, and we were trying to 
we were coming to a milestone where we were going to they were going to make a presentation in Washington and said, this, this is where we are with these two programs, the 107-105 in competition. And uh, we, were, we knew that they were speed limited for a while. And we wanted to drop a store at Mach 2 before they ever even got to Mach 2. You know? And in order to drop stores in those days, you had to get back over by Ventura someplace and make your run at the lake bed and they they cut off all the traffic on the highways on both sides of Edwards for you know about twenty or thirty miles, because they didn't know, they didn't know that 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 anybody knew where this thing was going to land, and you, and you were clocked in on the radar. The, the radar told you where to drop it so that it hit that target, that that hit that range out there, and because uh, there was no equipment in the airplane, you know, just a, so I went out to, I was out past uh, Santa Barbara and made a run. Started my Mach 2 run. I got up to about 1.5 Mach number, and the guy on the radar says, I lost you. Yeah, you're behind the clouds or some damn thing. So I pulled it out of afterburner and made a big, wide 360 degree turn. And as I'm coming around again, he said, I got you again now. So I lit the afterburner, and I'm coming in, and I'm, I'm about 1.6 Mach number, and I'm within about. Uh, 30 seconds of drop point and I'm accelerating and everything's going great and I looked out the fuel gauge and I got 600 pounds of fuel left by the gauge and this airplane you know this was uh, very early in the program and we had designed the fuel system in the fuselage of the 107 a little bit differently than the F-100 the F-100 we had put the uh, let's see in the F-100 the uh, the the, uh, the outlets of the tanks were in the front of the tanks, but when you're flying around like this, you could run out of fuel because it's all draining to the back. So they went the other way around F one hundred in the F one hundred seven. They put them in the back. Well, here I am. I'm putting her to Mach two, and I see I haven't got enough fuel to make it. And I said I I haven't got enough fuel to make it. I've got to abort the run. And I pulled it out of the afterburner, and the deceleration decelerated, and all the fuel went forward. And starved the engine, and the damn engine flamed out at, at 1.96 Mach number. By that time, I'm over the lake bed. I'm headed away from the lake, and the lake's full of water. And that runway down there, nobody's. We hadn't done any of the work on dead sticking, or you know, the, the ram air turbines and generators and everything that you flop out of airplanes when they single engine airplanes when they flame out. So I made a dead stick landing from 40,000 feet at 1.6 Mach number. And they, they chewed me out when I got down and said, how come you didn't air start it? Well, when I got everything under control, now I'm looking at a fuel gauge that I don't know whether it's right or not. I don't know why the engine flamed out. I, that gauge could be 600 pounds wrong for all I know. I had the field made, I thought. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I hit the air start switch at about 18,000 put the throttle around the horn and, and it seemed like it sat there for a long enough period of time for me and I thought you know that thing might just run long enough to make to put me in a bad position to make the field so I said I'm going to concentrate on landing and I shut it off and I got it in alright uh, How could you do a dead stick though? I mean didn't you get a control lock up when, when all the hydraulics went when the engine went? No because of this little ram air turbine Oh you had a ram turbine? Yeah, yeah. I got in out on the way down. Of course at mm -hmm. high speed it's, it's still windmilling at pretty high speed mm -hmm. but when it, 
when I got down subsonic and everything, I dumped out the ramming turbine. That gives you the electrics and the, and the hydraulic, mm-hmm. at least to control the airplane. Why didn't it have the intake on the top? Was that was that was that a soft field operation to stop ingestion? Uh, I don't know what the I don't know what the uh, theory was that created that. I don't know why they came about it. I really don't. Maybe more of a straight through shot. Mm. Uh, maybe to shorten it, we had some. You know, there's a there's there's a lot of losses in the longer the duct is. Losses, it might have been to shorten it. I don't, I'm not really sure. But the 105 went to the wing route, you know, and uh, mm. and they had their problems with that too, short duct. But everybody's worried about the uh, ejection with that thing. But I don't think it was any problem. That mm. all the tests we did uh, didn't show any problem with it. When you had to eject out of that um, tragic number two B seventy, um, did the system operate as expected? Was there any, was there any problem on that? Well, there were a lot of problems, but they were uh, they were problems that were. I mean, you you weren't injured in the uh, bailout, were you? It got you down to the ground, all right. Well, it got me down. I was injured. Uh, in fact, I was on the critical list for a while. Really, I didn't know. That. Yeah. What happened? Uh, if, if, if you want, if you want some, my feelings about it was that when the, uh, the accident occurred, when the collision occurred, the uh, we lost the vertical stabilizers off the airplane, and uh, again, did a very high yaw uh, do the aileron input. The airplane flew along for about ten or twelve seconds. And it started to go a little bit winged down, and when I put that out, we didn't know we'd been hit. We knew somebody had been hit, but wasn't sure that it was us, and really never occurred to me that it was us. You didn't feel any shock through the I heard noise. I heard a terrible explosion kind of thing, but didn't feel any... It didn't pulse the airplane, or... or, or, a, or a, didn't even seem to jar the airplane. But anyway, uh, when I put the control in, and it's, boy, it just took off, you know, and there was nothing to stop it. And I hit full power on that side, but it it actually yawed so far that it just virtually snapped. And of course they were yelling bail out, and and I was uh, in that big yawing moment. I pulled the the uh, thing that encapsulated you, but it, because of the yaw, I had my arm out, and it and it trapped my arm outside of the capsule. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the capsule, but if you if you pull up like this, and then the, the shell of the capsule is right behind you with that arm out, mm. and then you go back 15 degrees, and, and my wrist was trapped in this thing, and this part of my elbow came forward. So it pulled my, it tore the cuff out of my shoulder, and it really felt like it broke my arm there, and I thought my wrist was broken. And it took me a while to get out of that, because if I'd have fired it that way, I cut, you know, I cut the elbow off. And uh, and uh, Carl's over there having his problems too, evidently. But uh, you get you get pretty localized vision in a in a trauma like that. I find, and maybe maybe you're in shock or whatever it is, but you're only aware of what's going on immediately around you. And uh, I was aware of his white helmet moving when I when I encapsulated it lights the encapsulate lights if I were to bail out or if he was to bail out or if I pushed the button either one of us could 
actuate the bailout signal. I couldn't talk to him <coughs> because I had to, the way the system was rigged is that when you encapsulate and the doors come closed, it puts you on a hot mic interphone. So now you don't have to press any buttons or anything. We didn't have hot mic selected. We had a selection up here on the panel. We didn't have hot mic selected so that we didn't have it. And when I was encapsulated and got this arm bunged up, the control wheel is stowed automatically. I'm back here. I can't reach any of the buttons. I got one arm trapped. I can't. Because of the shoulder harness, I can't reach anything. But the doors didn't come closed and actuate the switch that gave me hot mic. So I'm out of I'm out of communications. I'm gone. I'm, I'm out of the picture and I'm trapped there. And the airplane is the airplane went into a flat spin. And it was they calculated when they put it in the wind tunnel afterward with the left the left wing came off the airplane. And they calculated when they put it in that configuration in the wind tunnel that the centrifugal force was pushing us forth with about prisoner 7 G's so it was getting close to red out time and I, I got out about 10,000 feet I guess and then the other the, the capsule had a I came out with the doors open as soon as I got my arm out I came out of the airplane the, the capsule the clamshell doors come down and there was an impact attenuator under the thing and the uh, it inflated into a big bag with blood patches on it but the door being opened kept that from happening so now I'm coming down and I finally closed the doors manually but I couldn't for the life of me at that time I knew there was a way to do that to inflate that thing manually but I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to do it and it was turned out that uh, you know, when I got down and got my senses again the control I couldn't have reached with this arm anyway I would have had to unstrap myself to get to it with my other arm, and by that time I was hit the ground. So I hit the ground. They figure about uh, 40 G's on the capsule, about 33 on my back. So I, I molded the seat pan to fit my butt, and I put my heel prints in the metal floorboard and a few things. So I had bad internal injuries, and I got real, uh, I got all stopped up I couldn't I couldn't expel gas out of in any direction and, and it was what happens is you know it keeps forming in your stomach and it, and it pushes your diaphragm up and, and stops your heart so I was for a little while they were we were having troubles with me being able to get rid of some of the gas all about uh, about 40 miles from there I guess yeah. out in the boonies but poor Carl, he uh, he never went through the first stage, uh, and we don't, we'll never know why. I guess he uh, he had been through uh, all of that training just the day before. Well, he'd been through the ground school, but we had a final. Uh, refresher of an hour at least in the in the capsule on the ground for them the day before but it was uh, you know it had to be a traumatic experience for him his first flight I'm sure is excited about that and then to have the damn thing come apart around your ears is 